Welcome to Our Connect Sessions, episode 30. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week's show is dedicated mostly to the AIA convention, which all four of us have just recently returned home from. We'll also be including a chat with Matt Jezik and Angie Izzy from Autodesk, who gave us a tour of some of their new software offerings. So I'd like to start out this episode by saying it was so great to finally meet you, Ken and Donna, in real life. You are both so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And you are too, Paul. And so is Amelia. (laughs) To borrow a word overused by my generation, everybody's awesome. And everybody's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it was remarkable. It's kind of like that whole early net experience of having a, a friend on like IRC channel or whatever, and you never meet, but you know through whatever message board, and then you just finally meet them like years later. Because I know, Paul, you've known Donna and Ken from the forums for... For ages. For ages, yeah. yeah. Ages. And you never know what to expect when you meet somebody. But, you know, sometimes it's surprising in a bad way. Sometimes it's very a very good surprise. And that's how I would describe this one. Actually, you guys just confirmed everything I thought about you, which was nothing but good things. Oh, that's so sweet. Fooled you all. What, Ken? <laughs> Fooled you all. <laughs> oh, come on. No, you didn't. We knew. Everyone I have met through Arconnect... I have liked very much. I've never so far met someone that I did not like through Archonnect. I'm curious, Amelia, to get your take on what it was like to be surrounded by so many architects, too. Well, the first thing I noticed is that as soon as you try to draw a generalization from a small region of architects like Los Angeles, where I'm based, as soon as you try to extrapolate that to a national level, it just completely dissolves and nothing works. So... As soon as I found myself surrounded by like, I think the the convention clocked in around 20,000 or so attendees of, you know, not all particular architects, if you're going to include people like myself, but just being surrounded by that many people in, you know, various means of formal dress and like business wear and everything, it completely reaffirmed the kind of idea that I had, but not being proved and living in LA that architects are very, they are a diverse set. Like they dress differently, they act differently, they have different ways of speaking. They're all, all from all over the place and they all have very different interests depending on whatever they're into. And it's kind of the contrary to the feeling you can get in LA where people are much more, there's a much more strong bent towards like the art architecture crowd, I feel. And so you get a lot of like these gaps gatherings that are tend to be quite academic or tend to be quite tending toward the more furrowed brow cigar and like <laughs> whiskey tumbler feeling of, <laughs> of academic intellectualism that wasn't the set at AIA where, you know, everyone's in Atlanta. So they have a liter of Coke and they're just running around having a great time, like surveying different building materials. So it's like a completely different explanation of what the profession could be. But yeah, as a non-architect, I just had a great time. I could kind of like get insulated by like an incredible number of people and just see all the different incarnations of what it could be. That's actually rewarding to me to hear because I feel like I spend a lot of time telling people, you know, you don't have to be the black turtleneck wearing high designer person. You can be so many different roles in the field. There are so many different roles in the field and we're all architects, you know, there's people that are into specs and products and construction detailing and life safety issues and all of these things that we're all related. And then, you know, now as the design fields in general are changing, all the lines are becoming that much more blurry. So there's people that are doing interiors or doing set design stuff, or there's just so logistics, even things like logistics and planning. There are so many avenues to work within the realm of architecture. 
And I think going to a conference like that confirms that again for me. And Donna, your talk at the conference certainly confirms that. We all got a chance to view Donna's presentation, which was so wonderful. So good. Yeah. Thank you. On a non-traditional practice. Do you want to try to give a little bit of a spiel, kind of a condensed version of what you spoke about? So I don't butcher it because I didn't give the presentation. No, it's okay because people have been asking me, oh, what's your talk about? And so I had to sort of develop a 20 second spiel. Uh, Don't time me though. (laughs) So basically I talked about non-traditional practice, particularly among emerging professionals. I'm involved with the Emerging Professionals Group with AIA, and and I'm involved with a nonprofit that is executive directed by a master's of architecture graduate who has no interest in becoming licensed. So I've been looking at all of these people that are doing creative things with their architecture degrees and maybe do not have any intention of becoming licensed. And then I parallel that with what's going on in the organizations right now, the AIA, NCARB, ACSA, NAAB. They are all looking at these emerging professionals and these very sort of, you could describe them as old-fashioned or top-heavy bureaucratic organizations are finally realizing, hey, these young people are graduating, it's a different world of practice that they're graduating into. And we need to learn to embrace these very non-traditional paths that many people that we would like to claim as architects are taking. And I quote from an article in the January issue of Architect Magazine, where Elizabeth Chu Richter, the president of the AIA, says that diversity in architecture is not just about gender or ethnicity or any of those things, but it's also about the very many avenues that architects can take right now in their career. So I talk about some very interesting, cool work that young people are doing. And then I talk about how the very very sort of old school traditional organizations are dealing with that fact and put those two things together. And yeah, and it's fun. It's a lot of people doing really cool stuff, like some tactical urbanism and guerrilla chair placement at bus stops and signage that shows up on Google Earth so that when you fly over, you get to see a sign for the city. Just, you know, lots of cool stuff. Yeah, the whole non-traditional practice subject can go so many different directions. But what I liked about your talk is how all of the projects, while they all had very different incarnations and were done from all over, mostly from the U.S. and Canada, they still were all very local. Like it seemed that the intent was always to help improve the immediate surroundings as wherever they were, like whatever relationship they might have had to the city beforehand is we, we weren't necessarily aware of other than the fact that they saw a problem and they wanted to fix it or they wanted to complicate it in an interesting way to draw attention to it. And one of the most kind of concrete versions of that that I liked from your talk was the moving of the or the transforming of the um, dome coverage of the stadium cover, this like canvas piece into different products. That just seemed like the most obvious and logical and yet so far too often ignored course to take after such a thing has happened. So for an architect to kind of take that under their wing of responsibility is very empowering and very cool to see. It's very much about making people, especially young graduates, but actually all architects feel like they're empowered to look at their built environment of their locality and impact it in some way. Because architecture should not just be sitting in an office when you hang up your shingle, you just sit in an office and wait for a a client to come to you and give you a problem to solve. It should be about going out and into the world, seeing things that look like a problem and saying, I have a creative solution for this. And uh, some of this even leads back to Bjarke Ingels years ago at the Idea Festival in Louisville. This was like eight years ago. I saw him give a talk about doing a proposal for a soccer field that the city had no intention of building housing around this soccer field. And he and his firm kind of said, hey, let's do some drawings for this. And they did it and they presented it to the city and they built up some support. And eventually a similar type project happened. As I recall, they were not the architect of it. But, you know, it's about architects feeling like we don't only work on the client's dime. We go out and do things because we want to make the world a better place, frankly. 
So I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. It's been fun working on it. And it all grew out of the professional practice class I was teaching in 2009 when there were no jobs at all to be had for emerging professionals. And um, so people just started doing their own thing, like the Cool House ice cream truck ladies that started the Cool House architecture themed ice cream sandwich food truck in L.A. Well, I think that the theme of your talk and the points, the uh, the projects that you brought up are all becoming much more relevant to the profession in general. I think this is something that maybe wasn't talked about at the AIA convention at all, maybe just even within the last few years. But I definitely see these types of initiatives as something that's becoming more mainstream within the industry. And hopefully it's going to take more dominance in conventions like the AIA convention. Yeah, to have the AIA kind of give the approval and the like tacit endorsement of this kind of practice is is pretty cool because hoping that the more people that see that might not have ever really considered that as an option and then can go from there. Well, I mean, the fact is that people are doing non-traditional work in in architecture right now that isn't the kind of stuff that the AIA really works within, but it's impacting the industry in general and all architects need to pay attention to this work because it's affecting our culture and it's affecting the public and architecture are the ones that are that are making this happen, regardless of whether or not they have an AIA at the end of the name or right. if they're practicing in the traditional sense. My very good friend, Wes Jans, who's a professor at Ball State, when we were teaching pro practice together, in fact, we would present this kind of work, but he always gets frustrated, and I totally agree with him, at the term non-traditional practice, that we shouldn't even have to call it non-traditional practice. We should just say this is architectural practice, right? That it's much more inclusive than just being a registered architect who draws floor plans, because there's so many more interesting ways to impact the built environment than just through a singular building. So totally. The practice is as diverse as the clothing at the convention, which spans the globe from, you know, khakis and, and golf shirts to uh, high fashion, <laughs> runway fashion. <laughs> I saw some toe shoes. Toe shoes? Which I was surprised by. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a lot of walking. That that it was a lot of walking. All of downtown Atlanta, at least where we were, was in the core of downtown Atlanta, seems to be like this convention territory. So there's really a lot. There's these large, the Georgia World Congress Center was where the uh, convention took place. And it is a gigantic, a gigantic yeah. place. It's, it's like a mile long walk just to get from one side of the building to the other. So I can encourage toast shoes or whatever, thing, <laughs> whatever you feel are most comfortable that keep you going, stepping from whatever talk to whatever talk. I have no idea what shoes you're talking about. <laughs> they're like gloves, but for your feet. Oh, yeah, they're the awful. Where you see every toe. Oh, okay. Yeah. No one should ever wear those toes out in public. I read that they're (laughs) actually not even good for your feet. They're not, yeah. So what's the point? I will say I saw a lot of glasses. I saw lots of great glasses. Mm. And that was to be expected among architects that you're going to see lots of great glasses. Speaking of glasses, actually, Bill Clinton gave the major keynote on the second day of the convention. And he has these amazing glasses that he wore in that I think were solely served the purpose as a prop for his charismatic giving of any presentation where he has these kind of Santa Claus-esque half crescent or half moon glasses that sat just on the tippy tip of his nose as he like read only from his sparse notes to deliver this otherwise quite eloquent speech. And the whole role of Bill Clinton at the convention, I think we had kind of discussed informally before, we were we were a little bit unsure is exactly how he would parlay his agenda or whatever he was going to talk about into the AIA and the architectural profession in particular, because you know, the Clinton Initiative does a lot of work in developing countries and has done a lot of like assistance in redevelopment efforts. However, invoking architects in particular seemed like it would be more just an opportunity to plug the Clinton Initiative, which it did seem like it 
essentially was. And aside from speculating as to how many hundreds of thousands of dollars Clinton might have been paid to, <laughs> excuse me, not hundreds of thousands, however many thousands of dollars Clinton might have been paid to give this keynote, we, I think we were all pretty impressed. And, and I think architects could, frankly, learn something from this just like incredible, charismatic, presentational style that Clinton is capable of and famous for, obviously. Ken, you pointed out his trust hands. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to explain the trust hands? Well, one of the... Um convention sessions I went to was um, how to present yourself as an architect. And the presenter gave a great presentation. And one of his primary points is, what do we do with our hands? And and a lot of times, you know, we were either wildly uh, gesturing or kind of at our side. Or he said the, the best hand posture is to kind of have them kind of in front of your abdomen and kind of like you're pulling something into yourself. So Bill Clinton had these, even behind the podium, um, had a great sense of uh, that kind of presence and a very, it has to be a practice thing because it's definitely not natural posture, but he would always come back to his trust hands and then he would do the, that long finger, index finger pointing gesture he does so well. And <laughs> he didn't bite his lip too much or do the thumb thing, but uh, he really rocked that trust hands posture. <laughs> it would have been kind of cool if he wore like Corbusier glasses. <laughs> he's like I'm, I'm trying to appeal to the set here so i'm like dressing it's like wearing the right color jersey to whatever sporting event you go to he made one comment about architects though that i think i could feel the entire audience of seven thousand people tense up when he was talking about his the design of his own presidential library and how Polshek was the architect for it. And uh, i don't remember exactly how it went but clinton followed along really closely and then Polshek moved one line and Clinton noticed it right away. And I feel like everyone in the audience sort of tensed up like, oh, no, oh, no. Is it, you know, what, this is the client suddenly getting too involved in telling us how we should do our jobs or something. It was a little bit tense just for a minute. And I kind of think, I know Clinton is very charismatic and I can see that he could be. I didn't quite feel like he was on his game during this talk. And I feel like I've heard other people say that as well. But it was still great to see him. He was definitely, you can see how he would be incredibly magnetic on a small, more intimate scale, like, you know, in the same room with him on a one-on-one -on -one conversation, you can see how incredibly charismatic he would be. Yeah. I mean, he's super charismatic and he definitely used every opportunity to kind of, uh, bolster his legacy. Absolutely. And he referred to his good friend, Moshe Safdi, who was also the winner of an award at the event. And Safdi designed the Crystal Bridges project in, in Bentonville, uh, Bentonville Arkansas. Yeah. yeah. Arkansas, um, right. So the they Walmart had some, family. yes, yes. <laughs> So they had some Arkansas-ian hee-hawing back and forth, supposedly backstage. <laughs> I heard they were drinking moonshine out there. <laughs> yeah. That Walton family member that was in the video talking about the Crystal Bridges, like she had super cool glasses. I was actually kind of mad. Yeah, like, she's pretty stylish. You have that many billions so you could afford to look like us? <laughs> she did not buy those at Walmart. She did not. I, during Moshe Softy, so Moshe Softy won the AIA gold medal. Is that yes. right? Yes. Because I tweeted that he won the silver medal and then I got all these tweets back saying, I think it was gold. So I screwed up, but I was clapping. I'm a huge fan of Moshe Softies and not just for his mustache, but for his buildings. <laughs> his mustache is amazing. But I was clapping so hard during him that I wear a big chunky wooden ring on one hand and I slammed a metal ring into it with the other hand and broke my wooden ring. I showed it to Ken when we were sitting there. I'm like, yeah. look, I just chipped my ring. I was so enthusiastic, just clapping my hands together. So that was my first AIA convention casualty was my wooden ring. <laughs> and let us not mention any other casualties. Right? That's right, please. <laughs> what happens in Atlanta? <laughs> One of my favorite podcasts recently released an episode where in the, the title of the episode is 
one of the uh, people is reporting from another location that they're usually in. So it's so-and-so is reporting hungover from Toronto. And that was just the entire ter- uh, title for the for the episode. So that is all we will relate to for any of the casu- other casualties that might have been otherwise implied in this episode. But we did actually get to talk to a lot of like, obviously, conventions like these people will go simply for the networking opportunities. And one day I spent a few hours just wandering around the expo hall where all of these people are presenting services and products and whatever, and just talking to random people, seeing what they were there for. And I I ran into some pretty lucky run-ins. Like one of them was a marketing director for AIA for a specific region. And that was kind of, you know, like, well, you're not great for an interview, but you're great for just, just like talk with, as well as some students who were there pretty much explicitly to look for jobs, which I found very interesting because they actually hadn't heard of a few of the other pertinent information that would have been helpful for students to know who had recently graduated, which was, of course, the um, NCARB's announcement at the National Convention that they were removing the official title of intern from their licensing titling um, hierarchy. So if you are, if you have are seeking licensure. Normally you would be called an intern architect. That would be your formal title that the that NCARB endorses. However, they've decided that term is too complicated and too loaded. And so at the convention, they made this formal announcement that we are no longer going to be using that word. They termed it sunsetting of the word in all of their literature and that they're going to now use this point as a beginning to start officially dissolving the word, which is to a lot of people a huge deal. To some people, they couldn't care less, all of them in whatever spectrum of seeking licensure. But whenever there's these kind of authoritative, complete policy changes that revolve around semantics, people do get really animated. You can see any of our posts on on our Connect about how this debate has been going back and forth, and people love picking apart these words. Well, I'm going to quote an Connect regular and podcaster. Uh, <laughs> that limits the group somewhat. <laughs> They punted big time. I don't care. They can say whatever they want. They can talk about this. It's just the first step of many. The first step of many is just, it's too, falls too short. So when you graduate from school, you are now a council record holder, which explains so much to so few. And then you're either, I don't even fully comprehend what you are next once you, after you get your council record and you're ready to sit for the ARES. And I said to them, the outgoing or the incoming director or whoever it was that was there, you know, I think why, I just asked them, why are, what's with all these verbal gymnastics? I don't understand why this was so complicated. If this is just an internal changing of, like uh, Amelia said, semantic kind of change, it doesn't effectively do anything but makes recent graduates feel good, then why not just call them architect in training? If that's all it is. If it's just a semantic, if it's just a play at uh, making a few candidates feel good about themselves, then they could have just said architect in training or associate architect, which apparently the AIA, when they did their survey, found that most young professionals, unlicensed professionals, find that much more palatable. It just seems that NCARB took two steps forward in a lot of ways, and then this is a little a big step backwards, and I don't think anyone is really too happy with it, except uh, maybe older licensed professionals. Or maybe the tech industry that now pretty much owns the titles architect and intern. Well, that was the other thing, too, is that they actually, Donna, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they suggest that if they can get this somehow, if they could work this through state legislatures, that they would actually seek to clamp down on the use of the word architect and have it only mean one thing and that software architects couldn't. I mean, I kind of got that impression. He kind of gave the, 
you know, the kind of some kind of indication that that's a direction they were actually trying to move in. And I'm like, really? You want to spend money doing that? I kind of feel like that was indicated in some way, but I can't remember if that was just from a side conversation we had after the press release announcement or not. So I agree that that would be pretty much a waste of time at this point. The architect is out of the barn already in terms of tech professions use of it. I agree with you that they punted. This was a huge punt. But to me, it's the one sort of solid piece to come out of it was that NCARB is saying they're going to work with state boards, et cetera, to remove, they're going to remove the term intern from their own internal communications and writings. And they're going to work with state boards to remove it from various states' laws, codes around licensing of architects. But my concern was, but there's two things that I was disappointed in. One, no official term. You're right. They didn't come up with the, okay, we're going to call them architect in training, or we're going to call them associate architects or anything like that. They just said, you can call yourself whatever you want, but you don't have to be called an intern. And to me, that's that's weak. I wish they had come up with something that was an actual term that everyone could rally around. And I almost think that would be make it easier to then go to the states and say, hey, we want you to pull intern out of your titling law and just uh, add in the word associate architect instead. But I was also disappointed that they did not loosen up the use of the actual word architect to include people who had graduated. That My hope was that they were going to, to go to a system of getting your degree, an accredited architecture degree means you can call yourself an architect, and that that would go hand in hand with this licensure upon graduation push that's coming from NAAB. And then once you pass your exams, you're a registered architect. I was hoping they were going to go that far so that in that, to me, that kills two burns with one stone because then a software architect is not a software registered architect. They're just a software architect. And then my registrations, my license means something more because I'm a registered architect and that's an official title. So that was the direction I was hoping it was going to go. What is a title that's supposed to replace intern? They didn't propose one. Okay. That's where they punted. They just said, call yourself whatever you want. If it isn't something that is clear and is something that people like to call themselves, people are going to end up calling themselves what they want. But here's the thing. I mean, this goes to every other complainer on the website about who controls the word architect. I mean, people think that AIA decide who gets to call, be called. Who, and I'm like, AIA doesn't have anything to do with this. So it's a state legislature that has. For instance, I, and I talked to them about this there. My state has said the state law here only recognizes the word architect as something that is regulated. Architect. So they said to us in our latest newsletter from the uh, registration board is that we do not regulate the, the word architectural. So you can go around and you can call yourself an architectural designer, architectural whatever. We don't regulate that. We regulate architect. And, you know, when you're defining laws, they they have, they describe and they're pretty narrowly defined. So there isn't a whole lot of loopholes to get through. So they have said we're just saying we're going to license we're going to license people who call themselves architects and we're going to regulate that word however Iowa may do something different. Wisconsin may do something different. And each state has their own set of like, you know, um, in Wisconsin, you don't have to have a minimum of a BRC to get licensed in Wisconsin. You can have a four-year degree and I think you can complete IDP and get licensed. I mean, so you can't practice as a... Under the broadly experienced architect mm, category? Is that what it is where you have to work for 10 years? No, no. A few states still have that. Yeah. And, and Wisconsin is really interesting. There, there's a few people here in Minnesota that I've run across who have a four-year bachelor's degree and can't get licensed here in Minnesota, but they're licensed in Wisconsin. 
So they can practice in a handful of that one state. And, you know, again, it goes in my state, it's not called reciprocity. It's called comity. That's why they can't regulate the word because they know like, well, wait a sec. We can't regulate the word because we can't say this because every state has a different policy regarding this particular thing. So they're punting to the state that the, the person lives in and says, check with your state board. Then they'll tell you what you can call yourself. And that's why there's no uniform thing here. And then just looking at the website now, they talk about the model law. They're planning these initiatives to make the change to the NCARB model law. And then once that gets worked through, then each state can then adopt those portions of the model law. And then they have to, you know, work the changes through however the word architect or how the title is regulated in their state. So it's not a complicated thing. But again, going back to what I said initially, is that if this is just about, you know, changing internal documents and it doesn't really have any teeth to anyone anywhere in the country, then there should be something that they should fall on to kind of let people know what they are. I've not heard that before where you graduate. It's like you're graduating college and you're graduating and you don't have a, you don't have a sense of I, I don't, I, I can't imagine I'm graduating with a physics degree and I'm not a physicist or I'm, an, I'm graduating with an engineering degree and I'm not an engineer. Well, what am I? Well, you can't call yourself an engineer. Well, what can I call myself? I can call myself an engineer in training because that's what's out there. And this one is a, just a no brainer. And again, great on NCARB, two steps forward. This is a big step back. Well, what also is going to be a, a fallout that we can't really anticipate quite yet, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see how employers respond to this change. Because if you're trying to look for a job and so I say your employer you're trying to post a job for a very specific, say, fresh out of school architect, someone who is actually going to follow the same track as, as the AIA sets out towards licensure, then how do you advertise to that person? How do you, with no specific label to reach out to, how do you do that? Is that going to actually affect the overall like ability for people to find the jobs that best fit for them? That's what makes it so confounding, doesn't it? Because not only now can we not call it an intern, not only can we not call them architects, but when you advertise on a job board, here's what the post looks like. Looking for recent graduate with three to five years of experience in Revit. And it, that you can you imagine the ridiculous nature of a kind of a job posting? But you can't even use you can't use the word intern or architect again. It, it'll be a state by state, but it doesn't make anything easier in that regard. It doesn't it just it complicates everything? The only thing it does is make people feel good that they don't have to call themselves intern if they're you know fifty years old and never bothered to get licensed, which is true of many people. They can call themselves something else. But follow the rule of Ken. I always do. What's the rule of Ken? <laughs> just call yourself a project designer. Yeah. That's why I finally figured it out. I'm like, I'm not calling myself an intern anymore. I'm just calling myself a project designer. It says nothing and everything at the same time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it says nothing in the sense that I'm not going to get the state board. I wasn't going to get the state board hunting me down. And it says enough to me that I felt pretty good about myself. And it didn't say anything in my office because it didn't carry any weight in my office. It just carried weight when I'm outside of my office. It's a way of describing myself legally without kind of, you know, I can walk upright instead of like bending over at the waist and picking up. <laughs> but isn't the typical reaction from a non-architect, wouldn't it just be like project designer? So uh, aren't you an architect? thought you were an architect. You know, it's like it's, it's, it's kind of hard for people to understand that someone that designs architecture can't call themselves an architect. I had a meeting yesterday with a client and team bidding the project. And uh, the guy asked me, he goes, are you a licensed architect? And I said, is there anything else? 
Is there any other kind of thing? And I get, I, you know, I feel that sense of ownership about it around the title. I spent a lot of money on, spent a good portion of my life working on that, you know, the, on that license and getting that license that I'm like, is there anything else? And he was actually goes, well, she works in our office. She teaches at the U and she does, she's not licensed. I said, well, I said, but I'm, I'm an architect. There isn't anything else but that. And it's because I'm working with a professional in my field, an allied professional, let's say. So I can't, like, I'm, I want to make sure that he's very clear about what he's representing and how I represent myself. Oh, no, I'm licensed. I signed these drawings. I'm the one who's mm -hmm. on the hook. Maybe all of this could be solved if people in this position who have been kind of now disenfranchised by not being able to call themselves interns or whatever, any collective term, can now decide, okay, we're going to pull a prince and we're going to remove all verbal language and we're just going to go by a symbol or an image or like a, a series of gestures that, that can only be communicated in person. And then there'll be some type of like secret society that, that is able to communicate exactly what you do. <laughs> emojis. And then you just tell everyone else you're an architect. And an no emoji. Yeah, an emoji. <laughs> Or an interrobang. Ooh. Ooh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can call yourself just a single pre-existing piece of punctuation, though. Maybe. You're right. Interrobang already exists. We could add a colon to it. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Colon? That's got, that's got some double meanings. <laughs> Let's talk about the voting. Let's talk about Ken's role as a Let's... delegate. What'd you do, Ken? What'd you vote for? Were you pleased with the voting? See, here's the thing. So... The business meeting, so I get my, before we get to the business meeting, so I'm a delegate and I became a delegate uh, specifically after I found out that there was a resolution for this um, tin foil hat organization <laughs> representing themselves as somehow divine light and truth around the 9-11 World Trade Center 7 collapse. So I figured I'm going to go to this and I'm going to vote this issue down. And so I picked up, I registered my delegate card and picked up my packet of uh, resolutions. And there was a um, an amendment, amended resolution in there that I'm, I'm guaranteeing you most people in the, at the convention who were delegates did not take a look at, uh, myself included. It was pretty straightforward what this particular resolution was about. We talked about it at the uh, AIA Minnesota when I went to pick up my delegate card. So the meeting was supposed to go from, you had to be there by 8.15 to pick up your your keypad. And the meeting was supposed to go from 8.30 to 10 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. And so we go through all the perfunctory festivities before, you know, re-saluting the FAIAs and all of the other things and talking about the uh, next phase of the I Look campaign and cheerleading around uh, Robert Ivey's efforts. And, and then we finally get to the... The resolutions we hear about the business report we're in the we're in the black and everything's great we get through the first resolution which was about the uh, equity in architecture which passed overwhelmingly and then we get to the second resolution which was to put it in in my terms was a just a giant clusterfuck <laughs> and this was really pretty important for associate professionals for newly licensed architects and it was going to graduate the fees and the original resolution talked about how it was going to be for associate members and then graduate their fees once they became licensed. And then it was the first, re the, the initial resolution was that. And then it talked about um, it was only going to be for the national fees that were going to be graduated and that state and local would not graduate their fees unless they wanted to do that. 
And then there was another thing, I think uh, part of their resolution where they were going to sunset the pilot program and oh, it was 15-2 and then they broke it up into two separate resolutions. Well, and that's where it all just broke down because there were questions about the language in the, the amended resolution regarding both those issues, newly licensed versus associate members. And then it was graduated fees for national. Now it's graduated fees across the board. And so it was interesting because it, it really, there was questions asked and all of a sudden there was amendments to the, to the resolution that were popping up. And I don't think there was anyone was asking for those specifically, but as it kept going and kept going and it just got further convoluted and nobody could understand what the hell they were voting on. Turns out that the finance committee only looked at newly licensed professionals who were associates and transitioning to professionals. And they only looked at the costs associated with that. They didn't look at the costs associated with um, newly licensed professionals and associates and what that would do to the to the fees uh, to the organization. So there was just this giant cluster of an event and it was 10 to 10. Remember, I said 830 to 10, 10 to 10 when we finally got around to voting on the resolution. And just before we were about to vote on the resolution, someone made a motion to table the resolution. Oh, yeah. So frustrating. So frustrating. So the motion was, the, the resolution was tabled. I think the worst part about all of it was the utter chaos that existed on stage from the, I don't know, sergeant at arms or the finance, uh, the chair of the resolutions committee, the person uh, um, in charge of running this particular part to the president. It was just nobody had a sense of what was being asked, what was being answered, what people were voting on. There was no clarity in anything <laughs> that was happening. So is part of the confusion, uh, you know, AA is going through this repositioning effort right now. And my understanding from what you said and from what I've heard from other people is that part of the confusion came down to states that are going to be reorganizing their state constituency based on the AIA's repositioning effort didn't know how this was going to affect them financially and that that was a big part of it, which to me just leads to the point that when you make a big change to an organization, when an organization is already in a state of flux, it's going to mm -hmm. be painful all around. Is that accurate? I, I think that's true. I think that was a question that was brought up. And it was interesting because when, when I sat down in the um, meeting with AIA Minnesota, when I picked up my delegate card, they were pretty sure this was going to pass. In fact, one of the things they were hanging their hat on is this particular point, is that they were really excited to do this for the Washington, D.C. chapter, because apparently there's a lot of architects in Washington, D.C. And because they work for the federal government, the federal government doesn't pick up or doesn't pay any of their AIA dues. They don't pick up any professional fee, uh, professional membership mm -hmm. fees. So they were thinking, well, this is going to be great for those young architects working in D.C. because they have to pay this stuff out of pocket. Well, the, the big objectors in the hall were the Washington, D.C. chapter. So we, I'm like, wait really? a second, why, why are they objecting? So yeah, there is a lot of reorganization, but I, I think, you know, and the thing is, I thought about this later, what I, what I, the motion I really wanted to make, and I, I, I'm surprised no one else did, was that we should have voted on the amended resolution. I didn't like the idea of tabling something that seemed pretty clear because it was different than the first one. Fine. That's understood. But at least vote it up or down based on what you have in your hand, not the convoluted rewriting of it. You know, vote on it based on what you have physically in your hand and let it, the merits of 
that or just pull that whole thing all together and say, look, no, we're going to pull this broken piece out and we want you to vote on 15 too. It could have been much more simply done. And what was interesting is that they were actually rewriting the amended resolution to make it more look like the original one. So if that's the case, then just have them vote on the one that they already know. It was interesting because the people who had the questions for the sponsors of the resolution actually wound up voting for it. They actually came back and said, we just had questions. We don't understand what we were looking at. And they actually wound up supporting it. So it was like, (laughs) wait a second. How did it go from asking questions to you guys amending, offering a friendly amendment? It was, that's how chaotic it was. And I said, you know, I got to pull myself out of this. I knew the 15-6 was going to fail. And I knew it was going to fail overwhelmingly. And I wanted to be around for that. And I regret not being around for it. I'm sorry. No, no, no. In fact, I I know they're going to do this again next year. We know they're going to do it again next year. They got more people to sign this. They got more supporters, more idiot architects who uh, were at the convention. (laughs) And this is the thing. I want to get to this, if you would allow me. I would love to talk about this one. Yes. So every resolution in the packet that I have went to the benefit of the organization or the benefit of the members, with one exception, not possible exception, with one exception. And it was 15-6. 15-6 was a complete bullshit, typical conspiracy theorist amendment to reopen the collapse of World Trade Center 7. And they try to get you to say, they try to get you to see they're only focused on this one building. But if you go to Arconnect right now and you go through these this recent idiotic thread that got shot back up again, he even says the idiot that in there who's posting this crap goes on to say, <laughs> this is a backdoor into looking at World Trade right. Center 1 and 2. Right. He says it. Exactly. And we all he know that's it. what this is about. These people, this Richard Gage and this FAIA from Denver or from Texas who signed this stupid thing with the other 50 impossible idiots that are in our organization somehow think that this is worthy of our time. And I can't express how ridiculous this idea is. This is the only resolution that I saw there that if passed would hurt every single member in the organization, would marginalize our profession, and it didn't do anything to further our profession or extend any benefits to our members. This was completely about these guys who consistently ask for donations from people to support something that only a few architects, like 0.4% of the profession believes is actually worthy of investigation or something, some ridiculous number like that. Yeah, a little over half of 1%. So it was very clear, and you're right, in the discussion threads that happened on Arconnect after the convention, the point was made very clearly that this group is using the AIA as a way to give themselves legitimacy to look at World Trade Center 1 and 2 and to figure out if this was, in fact, a conspiracy theory by the government. It's blatant, and I really hope we don't have to face this again next year at the convention. So here's the thing I wanted to say that, and I wanted to get out, and I wanted to get out there as well. I'm not for silencing free speech. These guys can continue to bring this resolution to the floor and it'll continue to get beat down. Over time, these people will die and so will this resolution. What I do have a problem with is that money isn't speech. Contrary to what idiots in Congress or the idiots in the Supreme Court say, money is not speech. These people do not require a presence 
on the expo floor. And for that purpose alone, I fault the AIA for saying that is not silencing speech. To say we don't want to host your, yeah. We don't want to, if we want to host them, we might as well host Comic-Con people. We might as well have LARPers running through the freaking expo. (laughs) We might as well just start letting people who believe that Adolf Hitler's still alive and and that uh, Andy Kaufman's going to be on tonight's uh, episode of last uh, show of David Letterman. I mean, you know, the conspiracy nuts do not have to have a presence on the floor to have their right to have free speech. They can come present their resolution. They're members of the organization. That is a sales floor. And what even galled even beyond that was that they were positioned specifically across from the AIA town hall, specifically. So we took $25,000 because we couldn't find somebody else to buy those booths or 20000 whatever it was that they were, $10,000. We took $10,000 of money from, money from people who were probably 9-11 family members who gave to that organization to buy those spaces. Uh, I mean, think about that. People who actually believe that they're somehow, that these people, these so-called professionals, somehow are going to offer them something they can never have, which is some kind of resolution that's going to have meaning for them. And that's what so pisses me off about these guys, is they think that they are going to give these people something of value that they can take away and, and that their lives are going to somehow be better for it. They are the biggest waste of space. And I told them that. <laughs> I went over there and I went over there and I said, I told them, I said, you guys are a disgrace. You shouldn't be here. And I'm going to vote you down. I'm going to vote you down every time you come here. I was hiding in the hangout lounge, hoping that that there wouldn't be fisticuffs occurring over at the booth as you were uh, as you were talking to them. But yeah, it's just a waste of everyone's time. One thing I've learned through my jujitsu, I don't want to fight anybody. I'm not here to beat you up. But if I will, I will choke you out. <laughs> <laughs> you just tapped him. <laughs> just tapped him. <laughs> and I just got my white stripe on my belt, so I'm ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah. It was crazy. I mean, they made neighborhood organizations look like, I don't know, the finest oil run machine in the, in the world. I mean, that's how yeah. crazy it was. This is not a, a great endorsement for being an AIA member, but you don't have to vote if you're an AIA member. You don't necessarily have to vote. But yeah, there's some dysfunction. And I think in any big organization, there's some dysfunction, but and especially organizations that are in transition. All right, let's talk about yeah. the, let's talk about the new campaign. <laughs> yeah, but Ken, just to kind of wrap up your point, I think that and Donna, your involvement in grassroots, you have probably more of a of a stead to say something like this. But just to say that there will be a time and place for things like that to be given the due process, and I'm sure the things <laughs> will work out as the way that that they need to. So one of the other major things to kind of continue our discussion of the event overall of the convention overall, one of the other major things that happened at the convention was the debut of the second video involved in the AIA's I Look Up campaign or Look Up campaign, which is a public awareness campaign designed to kind of reconnect the general public with what architects do and hopefully encourage more higher employment of architects and to strengthen the profession. The second installment was not explicitly an advertisement, the first video was a ad spot about the campaign, about the lookup idea of what architects do and that they observe their built environment in kind of a fresh and critical way. This was more about taking a personal approach. The video is titled An Architect's Story, and it focuses on Chris Downey, who is a blind architect working in San Francisco. And it was about a four minute documentary style kind of spot that was showed first on the second day of the convention and is now kind of being circulated on the AIA's website. As, as of this point, I'm not sure exactly where it will later 
sit, whether it will be pushed to television spots like the first ad was. At this point, this isn't specifically an ad. It is simply a documentary, a mini documentary featurette of sorts. But it shows a very specific story of, of this architect, Chris Downey, who lost his sight in 2008 and has kind of pivoted his practice towards designing specifically for the blind and visually impaired. And a big kind of the phrase or the big um, catchphrase of the whole piece was, he's a blind architect who has lost his sight, but not his vision. Did you guys think that this is a, an effective video to push the AA's agenda? The point that I made in the Architect discussion about it, as well as as I have made to other people, is this is not an official launch of the second campaign. The second phase of the campaign won't actually launch until July. This was a teaser, basically. But the notion of the second phase of the campaign is that AIA wants other voices to make films similar to this or related somehow to this that are related to the idea of how we as architects see the world, but also how architecture can have an impact on people's lives. So what were we talking about earlier? I mean, to me, this is kind of a, a way of reaching out and hearing these other voices from people and not the AIA just saying, oh, we are we contain all the knowledge of the profession and we will be the ones who will dole it out to the public as we see fit. But it sounds to me very much like they're saying we want to hear from the many, many different, various, diverse voices within the field, what your view of all of this is. So like you said, Amelia, I don't know how they plan to then distribute those things, if it'll just be a YouTube channel or something. But, you know, I'm remaining optimistic. Ken? Well, I mean, I guess what's interesting is that his story is compelling. I don't want to take that away from Chris. I think I've heard Chris's story before. If not him, it was it might have been somebody else. But I think it was Chris. So I've heard the story in the past. I think, and again, I, I kind of hit on the thought that there's something implicit in this idea that someone who is not sighted sees the world in a way that better than we who are sighted do in some way. You know what I mean? I mean, why is this the first story out of the box? I mean, it's a nice story, but when you go from the first piece to this piece, I'm not sure how this is the piece that you lead with. Again, he's one of like one. He's a, he's a, he's a very, very special case. And I'm not sure what the point of this being the first out of the box about the story of the stories that we can tell. And, and I'm, I'm a little confused by it, other than it being a very kind of um, hallmark TV piece, very kind of, um, you know, heartwarming piece. I yeah. just didn't, I don't think I understand what the idea is. As I said in the, the discussion fed on Archonnect about it, I think that it's specifically about getting away from the notion that all architects do is make buildings look pretty. You know, that we're here to decorate up whatever the engineers resolve as what the, the program requires. And I think that's a really hard notion for people to understand. And I think it could have been made more explicitly clear in the video about Chris Downey that he experiences the world with all of his senses. Because we all do that, too. We all experience the world with our feet as we walk on different sorts of paving and with our bodies as we feel warmth coming off the side of a building versus in the shady side. I mean, architecture is an all-encompassing physical experience, as well as encompassing memory and cultural memory. And I get that read very easily because I've been thinking about architecture for the last 40 years. And I think for someone who was just seeing this documentary, who had never considered architects as anything other than making a building look pretty, I think that's a harder message to get from that video. When I'm talking about how it's complicated for me to understand, I'm thinking about it more as a layperson. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. is this message understood in a way that, that communicates? Because again, they've been talking about the outward communication and we get that, but I'm not sure. I think it's too nuanced for the general public. And again, if he's one of one, I mean, then the general public is not going to encounter Chris. No, but everyone in the general public is one of one, right? 
every single person has their own experience with the built world. Yeah, but part of when you're selling a message is kind of seeing yourself in that other person, right? Is that kind of what you were looking for, right? Is when you're looking at an ad, you want to see yourself in that person. And maybe, I mean, if it was a little bit more explicit about, you know, that we all can see that people, even though they're not trained, they can, there's a certain level of blindness that comes in the general public, right? So the general public doesn't see the way that we see architecture, but it, that connection wasn't made. And maybe that's what I'm saying is that in some ways you have to beat people over the head with saying, you know, perhaps, you know, you're not a trained professional and you can't see the world the way architects see it, but Chris doesn't see the world the way architects see it. He sees it in a very different way, much like how you go through your world, that you experience things through sight and are not through sight, but through sound, through feel, and you intuit things. And, and he has to work on different I mean, it just wasn't, it was like something that we could appreciate as architects, but I'm not sure that my mom would get it. I think my mom would look at me, what is, huh? how does he do that? It'd be more about like, how does he draw? How does he, how do, what is he doing yeah. with those yeah. fingers on his paper? Why do I trust an architect who can't see where a door, you know what I mean? The, the- well, this is why I really think that this video, which I have to admit, I have not seen, has a lot of potential because, you know, I think the typical reaction to a video featuring a blind architect among people would be like, he can't be an architect if he can't see. So it makes them question what is architecture? What is the design of of space if you take away that sense of sight? That said, you know, I haven't seen, I haven't seen it. So I don't know how that's communicated or if that idea is even communicated. I think that it's really strange that you go back to the, the title of this campaign, which is I look up, which is using the one sense, you know, that this first person that's being profiled doesn't have. Yeah. Except that that's a narrow, and I've argued this already on other, on the website and whatnot, that's a narrow reading of I look up. To me, it's also about about experiencing and and stretching your boundaries more than looking up at the top of the Empire State Building, right? Yeah, that's a good point. To me, it's all very metaphorical. It's uh-huh. all a semantic debate that we are always, English is far too reliant on ocular-centric semantics and analogies, and that if we could all just <laughs> say we sense up or we are up, you know, then there would be some... How about we throw up? <laughs> no! <laughs> well, maybe we should move on because we've got a few other topics. We do have a lot other, but there's so much to talk about with this. So, but I would encourage people to go to the website and read some of the, the threads that we've been talking about this on because there are other people's perspectives too, not only are your four devoted podcasters. Yeah, we didn't know when we started this podcast that we would be film critics throughout the course of it. So this is, there's <laughs> definitely some room for interpretation here. So moving on, we met up with Matt Jezik and Angie Aziz from Autodesk. Matt Jezik comes from the original team behind Revit. So he has a lot of insight into the technology behind this software. And they introduced a couple new products to us, which is Autodesk Format and Dynamo, which just recently launched. So why don't we listen to that conversation now? So we're here at the Autodesk booth at uh, the AIA convention in Atlanta, and we're here with Angie Izzy and Matt Jezik. Angie, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Autodesk? Sure, that'd be great. So at Autodesk, I'm responsible for the global architectural strategy and business, and one of the things that I do that's really important is to work with people like Matt, and he'll introduce himself, but we work together, and I go and talk to architects and understand what the gaps in their workflows are. I bring it back in Autodesk and make sure that our product teams and our Uh, other executives understand what those problems are and how we address those with our software. And so it's really a big part of how we can respond to our customers' needs. And um, Matt, what's your role at Autodesk? Okay, great. Yeah. So I'm Matt Jezik. I'm an architect by background. Uh, I'm one of the original people that worked on Revit back in the day. And now uh, what I do is I run a group inside of Autodesk that 
basically we run like a little startup where we explore new technologies and new product ideas, working with Angie, working with a lot of people in, in industry, both in um, commercial firms and also in academic settings, to understand where are the possibilities, what could we build that's the next generation type of tools. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, are two tools that we have been working on for a little bit. One's called Dynamo, a Dynamo Studio, which is a parametric modeling system, visual programming solution. And the other is called Autodesk Format 360, that is all about web modeling, very interactive push-pull exploration on uh, in just in your web browser or in your iPad or Android tablet. So today we're going to be talking about a few new announcements from Autodesk. I'm uh, an architect by background, as is Angie, and we work in the part of Autodesk where uh, we build things for architects and engineers and con the construction industry. And typically we've done things with Revit and kind of building out building information modeling. And we're happy to announce today that we're expanding building information modeling to be uh, to take into account earlier in the design process. So we have tools for computational design workflows, early kind of uh, conceptual and computational design tools. So yeah, um, so I'm Angie, and I just want to tell you a little bit about why we're doing this. I, we really want to respond to our customers' needs, and there's a lot of trends in the industry today that are enabling people to work and understand more earlier in the design process, and that's what we this is all about. So we have two offerings that we're going to be talking about. Conceptual design-oriented software um, is the first one that we want to talk about. And what we're seeing is a lot of people have been still doing hand drawings. They're doing things that are not attached to the BIM process, and it's a very disconnected workflow. And so part of this disconnect is what really enables us to, to come up with a product like Format that we're going to talk about today that allows you to extend the BIM workflow earlier in the design process by adding tools that are, do, you don't have to start over once you are, you know, once you start designing. And these are ubiquitous and allows you to use them anywhere, anytime. So you can use them, there's, because it's a cloud-based solution, you can use it on a web environment or you can use it on your mobile device. And all of this is connected, enabling you to go into Revit long-term through the BIM process. And that's, that's one of the key things that we see happening in the industry is there's a lot of rework. You know, you have someone coming up with an initial design idea and they're kind of working in isolation testing things out, but then there's a handoff process and a rebuilding that's really inefficient. So ultimately, there's going to be one building built, so why not have a team that you can collaborate more effectively together? That's where we're going. That's the whole idea with uh, something like Format here, where on the screen, for, for those of you on the podcast, um, we're looking at uh, a, a new application called Format, which runs... It's a cloud-based solution. It runs in the web, on, a, on your regular web browser, and it also runs on uh, iPad tablets and Android tablets. So the basic idea is that design happens anywhere. When you have a new idea, you can capture it in the same way that you would sketch something out in your Moleskine uh, sketchbook. You can capture that digitally and build a 3D model using, uh, you know, basically your fingers or a stylus or uh, a really simple-to-use application with a lot of... Uh, interactive sketching, 3D modeling, and uh, push-pull uh, capabilities. So the basic idea here is um, we're building a new technology and a new product that runs completely natively in the cloud. A lot of new technologies uh, are not bound to a desktop anymore because people are more mobile. You're moving around a lot. There's a lot more collaboration happening. But it still needs to be connected with the rest of your process. So we're building something that talks natively with Revit. You get a Revit file that you can give to your colleagues back in the office if you're moving around. You can also actually gesture, you know, have a lot of freedom in, uh, when you're creating the model, but you can be very accurate as well. That's something that we hear about is that 
I need a lot to be able to express my design idea, get it down quickly, but then start to change it and uh, add more detail. We know that you're building a building too. You're not building a piece of jewelry and automotive transmission. So buildings are aware of their area and volume. They also know things like how much energy the, the actual design is going to be using. Uh, so that's an important aspect in the design process. And of course, collaboration we mentioned before. We have capabilities because this is a cloud-based solution to have a real-time session where you can share this model as if you were all standing in front of a sketchboard together and play what if. Like, what if we change things over here or walk a client through the design? That's a really a great, great idea. So how is Format connected with Autodesk, is it or is it a completely separate uh, piece of software? So we, uh, so Angie and I both work for Autodesk, and this is a brand new technology that we're building um, that is separate from AutoCAD, separate from Revit and other applications. It's a brand new thing, but it ties closely together with our, our existing technologies using uh, a cloud-based solution we call uh, Autodesk 360. So you can log into a, a website in the back end, and that keeps all of your information in one spot. Just add real quickly that you know, not only is it a new technology, but what we've done is something a little differently than we normally do. Instead of working behind the scenes and building a software that we just take out and take to market, the last year and a half, we've had this in market as a beta and allowed our customers to give us real feedback, and they've been working on real projects, and that really enables us to build better solutions for them, and that's really what we've, you know, that's really what we've done, is we've taken this customer feedback and given them the real features that they really want in the software. How do you collect that feedback? Well, we have a, a design team inside of the, the, the company that we, there, we're all uh, architects and, and engineers uh, with software and user experience backgrounds. So we work directly with people in firms, sit down with them and, and figure out, understand what their problems are and, and what their really business goals are and design goals are and help them to uh, articulate that so that we can make something for them. Then we give it to them to, to try it out. So it's a tight, iterative loop. It's a really collaborative way to work. And last year, we visited way over 200 firms between the two of us, and then take we take those back to the designers, and then we actually go back and submit for feedback with those designers. So it's really an iterative process, and we'll continue working with those same firms and even new firms as we progress through this product. Because it can be agilely developed, because it's not just a one-time release, we can continue to develop on top of this, and that's what we plan to do. As you've um, been developing the software, what's been the biggest frustration that you've experienced? As a user of Revit, one of the things I've realized is that the software is much more powerful than the hardware that currently exists. Is that still uh, kind of the, the biggest frustration as you look forward? Uh, yeah, so... My background is I'm one of the original people that made Revit. So we've been using it and, and internally, but also working with uh, high-end firms all around the world, doing things you know, all the way from the Freedom Tower and large, really large superstructures all the way down to the smallest renovation. So people are using Revit successfully. You have to think about how much to model and where to model. Um, but and that we're learning from that here and how we can leverage the cloud to actually model more effectively uh, here. Because you're not just tied to one computer, you can scale up and use other services available not on your local device. Right, but in, as I understand, it, it's not just a modeler, it's an information modeler, right? So the old, what's the end, what's, what do you kind of see as your end goal with the software? I mean, is it a fully integrated model where I can actually build something in the model and print out specifications from that model? Is that something that's uh, out in the future? I think for, for the type of work that we're doing here, there's building intelligence in it. Yeah. Uh, but what we're trying to do is give you give the early design professional 
enough information to make good decisions. It's not about creating contract documents. It's not about doing, uh, you know, CA from this model or uh, contract administration. It's more about uh, understanding when in the early part of the design process, when you can make the most impact, how do you make the best decision? Ultimately, yeah, I mean, the larger strategy is to, to, to have more and more of the model in one place in a way that is, is consistent so that you end up with less problems in the field. But that's, that's a different set of uh, capabilities. So here we have, I'm in the Formit web application right now. And it's a, what we have is a push-pull modeling interface. So you can start sketching really quickly and easily inside of this device. And as you're sketching, you know, things happen like, okay, it'll create a surface for you. It's a little hard to do this one-handed, but... And you can do things like push-pull. There you go. So it's a really intuitive kind of natural way to work. In this particular model, this is a residential case where I've brought in... Um, and existing conditions like uh, from Revit. So I've got walls that I brought in and I'm trying to start figure out how do I lay out like a new kitchen or like a new uh, interior. So this is not just for the outside massing or conceptual exterior shape. You can do interior work as well. Um, the key thing with Formit is that you can model cleanly and you end up with um, objects that are smart. Like in this case, I can bring this information in from something like SketchUp or from Revit. Uh, and it retains its intelligence. So I can uh, double click in and modify these types of components. And as I change those, that will obviously propagate through. And like if I have other, other content, it'll, it'll update. But if I take this back into Revit, it'll still know that it's a family and I can reuse it. So that you're cutting down on that rework that's happening. So that's it. just a kind of quick idea. It's um, a lot of modeling capabilities. Uh, we're adding more advanced modeling, like lofting and surfacing. And then one thing that we're doing in, in the Pro offering, Format 360 Pro, is we've added the collaboration capabilities that I've talked about before and uh, the energy analysis capabilities. So we have those uh, online as well. Okay, you mentioned um, energy modeling capabilities. Is there any application for this in post-occupancy, after design, so facilities management type applications? Is Absolutely. that coming? So we, we see people doing what's called rapid energy modeling, where... Um, you can take an existing structure and build a very quick energy model using these types of tools and understand things like the energy use intensity of the existing building, dial that in based on utility information, and then understand what level of um, work can we do to actually increase the efficiency of that building. So we see that, that happening a lot. So regarding the kind of market research and talking to consumers about the product to improve upon it, are you partnering or have you worked in collaboration with any ar architecture schools um, to develop this stuff? Yeah. For example, this week I was just down at Georgia Tech for two days and we collaborate really closely with uh, Georgia Tech, you know, places like MIT. We teach classes there, Stanford at, at uh, SIFI um, and at various other places like Carnegie Mellon, you know, Pratt, Yale, all these other places. Definitely. And so the students there are able to have like a direct dialogue with people from Autodesk to say like, this is the things that work. These are the things that I think would need to happen in order for me to really use this well or those kind of things. Absolutely. And that's that's for you know students, but also for faculty that are doing research. We see a lot of people that are doing research using these tools. And that's that's probably a good segue into um, our next product, which is which is Dynamo. So we have uh, just in the interest of time, I want to keep on going. So the, the other product that we're launching this week is Dynamo Studio. And this is really built from the need for a computational design in architecture. 
And there's been a really big um, demand for computation design, and it's coming from education. And one of the things that we've noticed is that those tools that are coming from education today really are not building aware. They allow you to design anything you want, but they don't understand where they are in relation to building materials. They don't understand as far as uh, building site. And so what we've done is we've taken something that was an open source technology that was available for other people to develop on top of, and we've taken what's called Dynamo that's open source, and we've decided to actually make a product out of it that Autodesk can productize and make available and try to get um, other uh, get more people to use. And so this product is really around the trend of computational design, but in a way that we take uh, geometry and attach logic to that and then expose it in a way that allows you to go further downstream and look at iterative design. So this is um, more of a different type of user. This is probably more of an advanced user, but enabling them to script and add building systems um, to their design. And so this is a new product for us, and we're looking forward to uh, seeing this in market this year. Yeah, I think uh, so specifically what, what we see in this computational design is um, obviously students in school are creating very advanced um, uh, systems. They're not just building models and geometric models anymore. They're building using other uh, computational tools things that you can flex. You can build up something and, and add rules to it and then understand how that's going to perform. That's what we've added in something like Dynamo, where you can take Revit, say, for example, and add your own rules to it, or you can run it completely separate from Revit and create your own uh, brand new model that follows the rules that you decide you want to make, not something that we inside of Autodesk uh, want you to use. So here's what uh, what Dynamo looks like now. Um, this is uh, the newest version, and as Angie mentioned, what we're doing is developing this. The core technology is open source, so we've built a large community of people that are all working together with us to create this tool, and it runs on top of uh, Revit. It's part of the actual Revit application, and what we're announcing now is Dynamo Studio, which is... Uh, it's a way to run Dynamo completely separate from Revit. So for people that don't really need to create a detailed model, they can experiment and have this parametric sketchbook to create something really quickly and efficiently using this tool, play around completely free, and then create something from that to fabricate or to take further into the process. So we're pretty excited about that. So we're in a quick video. So this is how uh, Dynamo Studio works. Basic idea, it's like you know a parametric sketchbook where you can create just a basic sketch in the same way that you could do by hand. Uh, but in this case, I'm gonna start laying out uh, a train station. So my design part T can come out of a really quick idea. And then from that, I can start to sketch out a parametric model that I can flex really easily. So that's the basic idea here. I'll spin this up a little bit. So this is Dynamo in action. So the basic idea is it's a visual programming environment that you can use. So you're creating um, nodes and wires that represent logic and behavior. So as I'm sketching that, I can work with it interactively in the graphical canvas, or I can use these nodes and connect them together. And as I do that, I'm building up not just a basic model, I'm building up a system that has rules. So in this case, I'm just laying out you know, a couple pieces of geometry that have parametric relationships to each other. I can build up the, the module that we're using here and flex that really easily. Start wrapping geometry around that. So my structural system is starting to come into play. And I can start to play and have a uh, conversation with colleagues in the office about, hey, would it make sense for this thing to, to actually be more vertical expression or, or less? And then from that, you can take that further into 
something like Revit and make real model objects out of it, real structural objects or um, building uh, envelope pieces, taking that sketch and turning it more into reality. So that's, that's the kind of workflow that we see happening in firms and industry all around the world, is you have a quick idea, you test it out, and you explore not just one idea, but many, many ideas, and try and validate which one is the best. So that's what we're allowing you to do in this type of system. So let me ask you, if sort of the next step in this is to get it off the screen and make it like the, you know, the thing that Iron Man does, where yeah. he throws the software images around with his hands, What's the next step after that? Where do you guys see, like, look 25 years from now. Sure. You know, 15 years from now ago, we thought, oh, AutoCAD's barely going to, you know, we're barely going to use computers. We're still going to rely on a hand. 25, 50 years from now, what are we going to be doing with buildings and with drawing and designing buildings? So we're not going to build small-scale things anymore. We're not going to build with a proxy for actual building pieces. We're going to start building something that is real size and real scale and experiment with materials understand not just, okay, this is going to look like a painted piece of metal or aluminum, but how will it perform? What are the thermal characteristics of it? How can I literally pull something out of a box like Iron Man does that's the assembled piece that some other device, I've told it what to do, and it worked for four or five hours to fabricate it? The manufacturing process today in the manufacturing world, we are light years behind them, and they're already doing this. And I think that's what is really going to drive this industry is the manufacturing process. And so sensors today, you know, we can put sensors in buildings and understand more about how the building's reacting. And that's really going to change the way that we build buildings in the future. And I think that's the biggest thing is we can understand so much more and then we can build and do repetitive processes. And that's not 25 years away, but that's really going to help us launch into that, you know, to that realm. Yeah, it's, it's happening now. I mean, things like multi-material 3D printing, you can actually get the performance characteristics of real materials adding things like carbon fiber to an active print, it's all happening today. So I'm, I'm, I'm the regular Revit user on the podcast. And I also use uh, Formit on my iPad. And I've been using Formit since it released, and I think it released three years ago, three, maybe four years ago. It's now a, um, a browser. It's also browser-based as well. Revit is your answer to SketchUp. And I use it on my iPad a lot. I like the functionality on the iPad. But they have moved to connect users of Formit with Revit so that you could create, you're out in the park, you have an idea for something, you start drawing it in uh, Formit because your iPad can't obviously use Revit on your iPad. And I believe that it's a great way of taking your ideas from kind of that modeling schematic design level and bringing that into Revit for real use. Because I think one of the biggest challenges for uh, the design profession has been that um, there are people in the office who really do a lot of marketing in SketchUp. And once you do your SketchUp model, you move on to your construction documentation. And then now you're developing simultaneously two separate ideas on two different platforms and they can't talk to one another. So Revit has tried to, and Autodesk have appeared to have tried to get users of Revit to adopt this in order to move away from a technology that it is incompatible with theirs. And I've been saying this for a while that every time they keep improving the format, it further pushes away my uh, sense of wanting to use SketchUp at all. And it seems like now that they've integrated it with Revit, it's going to be a great tool and it's going to be something that I'm really going to use a lot, I think. So that's my understanding of the of what they're doing right now. 
Well, at least we got a chance to kind of talk to with them directly at the convention. I think having that kind of interface and the opportunity, especially to talk with someone who has been involved with the software, like from early on, was pretty remarkable. So I hope that, you know, if you were, maybe if you were at AAA and you had a chance to drop by their booth, let us know if you got a chance to check out the software too and what you thought of it. And then you can spar with Ken about the efficacy of these various <laughs> things and go with your um, preferred mode. But I think we hit on pretty much everything that we, or the major pieces of the convention. It was three packed days and we weren't even, like, it's impossible to see everything. So I'm sure there's a lot more to talk about, but um, we're just going to have to cut it off for now. But um, it was so great. Just, I think we all got a hoot just being able to meet everybody and get insulated by an incredible community of architects for, for a few days. I just want to say one other quick thing. One of the, the first seminar I went to was presented by Brenda K. Shear. She's a planner and she taught, she presented on social and environmental justice in architecture. And she came up with this, this terminology that I loved, which was that the 20th century was the era of progress, right? It was the era of highways and, and skyscrapers and all this amazing progress, the age of progress. And that the 21st century now needs to be an age of healing from all of that progress that, you know, we, we've done so many things that damage our environment and damage our society through all of that expansion that now is the time to go back and sort of with a very small scale, start to fix things and heal them a little bit. And after I went to that talk, I went to a talk presented by Tesla and Ken, you were also at this talk and I thought the Tesla talk was fantastic. And then that night at dinner, I sat across from Ming Fung of Hodgetts and Fung, and we got to talking about the Hyperloop. Craig Hodgetts was on the podcast about 10 episodes ago talking about the Hyperloop studio. And Ming and I got to talking about this idea of big visions and grand visions and that the Hyperloop is a great big new you know, super plan. And with Tesla came up with this whole new way of doing a car. And and I think that that's equally valid. Like, I just want to say this is my common refrain. There's room for all of it. I think there's room for architects to be doing these very small scale interventions that sort of heal a place for people. And then I think there's room for architects to be doing these grand visions of, you know, the new way of moving around across miles of our country. So Again, the whole convention to me reaffirmed this idea that it is such a broad discipline. We have so many ways of approaching the discipline and doing work within it. So that was what I wanted to say, my last little sort of personal bits about the convention. Ken, I think you wanted to talk about a couple people too. Yeah, I mean, let's uh, talk about our dinner that night. You know, Donna knows a lot of the big heavy hitters in this business. Don't let her fool I know people who know them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. So we had dinner with, uh, like Donna said, Ming Fung. Uh, Kevin Daly, uh, formerly of uh, Daly Genick, and now just just Daly. Tom Baresh, Jenna Shimizu, and Josh Kagashal. Shimizu Kagashal, and then Violet and Kennedy, front of Violet, is that right? Of Violet and Kennedy. So, yeah, yeah <laughs> it was quite a meal. Yeah, that was, yeah, that there's it's something that's pretty surreal when you're sitting with those people. You're like, wait, I've liked their architecture. I've liked their architecture. You know, so you're going around the room going, yeah, I've liked all of their work. But they have a connection with Paul, too, which is funny. <laughs> Tom Brush was actually my last uh, studio instructor at SciArc. So it was great to see him again. But the food was awesome, too. That was a great the restaurant. Food was awesome. It was called, the, the restaurant yeah. was The Optimist. So for those of you in Atlanta or planning to go to Atlanta, check it out. Really good seafood. And the octopus was amazing. I learned to love shrimp and grits on this trip. Yes. Yeah. That shrimp and grits at, at six feet under was where we yeah. went for lunch one day. Oh man. oh, man. That was the best shrimp and grits Spicy, I've ever had. just perfectly blackened. So good. Oh, man. That was good stuff. <laughs> and the bourbon was good. Every bourbons. Every bourbons. Is that the name of the title of, of the episode this week? <laughs> yeah. Every yeah. Bourbons. Every bourbons. Um, we had a great conversation. I don't remember much of it. I think Donna probably remembers more. 
with the Latrobe Prize winners, uh, Peter or Hadley and Peter Arnold out of which uh, they're out of uh, Woodbury? Arid Lands Institute at Woodbury Institute. And they were fantastic. And I'm hoping we can get them maybe to talk on the podcast at some point. They were they were great. And they won this uh, Latrobe Prize for um, research for research on the same day that Peter Eisenman won a prize for education. And um, yes. I think that was presenting two people at sort of very opposite ends of the spectrum on the stage on the same within the same hour. So it was uh, it was interesting seeing Eisenman speak. He only gave a very, very brief. Yeah, and he said he said some provocative things, which I, I, I kind of definitely with, um, which if we get, uh, <laughs> if we get uh, Hadley and Peter on, they could probably expand a little further on that. We met a lot of great people there. Uh, we met the Arcaspeak crew and they, they seem uh, like really great guys. Yeah, I was bummed not to uh, not to meet them. I was looking forward to meeting those guys. You never met them at all, did no. you? We, Ken and I ran into them right on the expo floor all as a group. And uh, it was wonderful. They're a great fun, interesting group. Cormac and I had met in Washington, D.C. previously at Grassroots, but I had never met Neil or Evan. So they are doing a really good podcast, too. So people listening to this, I'm going to go ahead and give Argus Speak a little plug because they're they're doing a really good one. Different from us, but very, really very good. Well, we'll have to meet up with them one of these days. <laughs> so I'm thinking at next the next uh, conference, we have to do a meet the podcaster session so people can actually see our, our faces and get to know us. We should yeah. do a keynote address about how to speak on podcast. Aim high, Ken. Aim high. <laughs> Keep it short. <laughs> Keep it short. We got to talk with Ned Kramer real briefly, which was great. Finally put a, he put a face to a name or a face to a voice. So that was really great. A couple of people I wanted to single out that were um, very interesting to speak with. Obi uh, Okolo had a great, he's uh, either a graduate or a, um, a student. Graduate and he works now for AIAS National. And what's important about him, about his Kanye architecture talk was really fascinating. He has no intention of being a licensed professional. He's looking more of a, um, he's again, he's, he's one of these future leaders that is not going to get licensed uh, because he feels his voice is better situated and his passions are better situated around public issues and, and policy and things like that. So he gave a great session. So I want to give a real, um, just shout out to him and, and, you know, keep doing what he's doing. We met with uh, Catherine Darnstadt, who is another very interesting woman that we ran into there. And she had a lot of things to say about the profession, really around equity. And uh, her story is very interesting. We met with, uh, Don, do you remember Kurt's last name? Kurt Nieswander. He's one of those people without a term, I guess, In because um, I, I don't think he's registered yet. And he is in Flint, and he's doing some non-traditional community type work in Flint, as well as working as a passive house designer. Yeah. Yeah. And then Jeff Eccles, who does a, he did a lot of... Um, Periscoping, and he does. Uh, does he, he think he does a podcast, Coffee a Day, and you know some some really great people there doing a lot of great things, and you know really passionate about what they're doing. So that was really really fun. Everyone is passionate about what they're doing there, and that I I came back feeling so inspired, not just by spending the time with you guys, which was a huge part of it, but also just being around people who love what they're doing and love to talk about what they're doing. Well, that's the nice thing about architecture. I mean, architecture doesn't provide them you know the hugest financial uh, benefit of of uh, of the career options out there. So the people that do put in the time and the the money and, you know, all the effort to be an architect, do it for the passion. So when you get 20,000 people like that together, it can be pretty inspiring. I got to work on my bourbon gut though, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next one's in Philadelphia. So I don't know. What do they drink there? Cheesesteaks. We're going to be eating cheesesteaks cheese like crazy. Oh, God. Oh, man. <laughs> Fantastic. Ken, I'm sure there's a vegan cheesesteak place for you. No. Don't worry. Oh, no, there isn't. No, <laughs> no. there's no such thing. No. I'm sorry. No, there isn't. And if there is, I wouldn't allow it. Is there it even exist. any dairy in Cheese Whiz? Isn't that like a typical Philly? No, it's just, it's just like melted plastic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The real cheese sticks are not 
with the cheese whiz. Sorry. <laughs> I will plant that flag right now. Good cheesesteaks do not have the whiz. Okay, so that's Donna's endorsement. <laughs> yes. Paul, what do you have to endorse this week? I just want to quickly endorse the ACSA's new campaign that they just launched called I Made That. This was something that that was discussed in, in great detail when I met with them in Dallas a few weeks ago. It's a really cool campaign. You can find it on any of your favorite social networks, hashtag I Made That. And I encourage all of the uh, students and architects out there to share what you're working on by posting to Twitter, uh, Instagram, or any of the others uh, with hashtag I Made That. And it's all compiled within your favorite social media networks and on the imadethat.com website, which acts kind of as a social media aggregator. And it's there's a lot of really cool stuff on there. So check that out. I also want to uh, endorse the recent photos that we just posted of the uh, Thorncrown Chapel by uh, Ife Jones. The photos are by Randall Connaughton. And they are stunning, as is the project. And I must say, like, based on the comments from some of the more controversial commenters on Arconnect, this project is probably one of the most uh, democratizing architectural products out there. I mean, nobody can say anything negative about it. It kind of brings everybody together in a very uh, agreeable, peaceful manner. So check that out. The project is really stunning. Can I do a tiny violin endorsement? for the world's smallest violin endorsement for one particular news item on the on the site. It's for uh, Santiago Calatrava. He's very sad, very, very sad right now. Mm. He was treated like a dog. He's been treated like a dog and... Yeah. A very spoiled dog who gets like homemade food made for him, but a dog nonetheless. I feel bad when the project that he, for the World Trade Center site, costs $4 billion. I mean, it, the fees must be exceedingly small. Um, so. <laughs> I thought that was a um, a free project he did. Oh, was it? Pro bono. He did it pro bono. Pro bono. That's the word I was looking for. Oh, Amelia, what? do you have any endorsements this week? I do. Recently, Julia Ingalls published um, a piece on employment stats. She is looking specifically, she's had a whole, whole series slated to come out in the near future about the state of architecture employment right now. And this first piece, which is entitled, There are tons of architecture job openings these days. Why aren't you hired yet? Is basically a signpost in this stage of the profession where we do have a lot of jobs. We see it on the job board. We have the data to back it up that we are really in this place where there are more jobs than there are architects. And so this piece is a kind of helping hand to those who are still having a little bit of trouble finding a job and how they can best prep themselves and quaff their feathers to be more appealing to very, very eager employers at this stage. So heavy endorsement towards Julia's piece. Um, She's got a few more employment-based pieces lined up that will launch in the upcoming weeks. So stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about this piece and the the upcoming ones. Some of the comments to that article, I think, have confirmed our own beliefs that there's really a lot of lack of awareness of what the market's like these days. And there are a lot of people, I mean, just hearing from, I mean, we run the biggest job board for the architecture industry in the country and we get a lot of feedback from job seekers and architects. So we're pretty in touch with what's going on in the market right now. And there are still a lot of people out there struggling to find work. And when you hear about the kind of applications that the firms are getting, you know, it's understandable why, why they're not getting hired. So, you know, I think if people start putting a little bit more attention into into how they approach the process of, of looking for a job, they'll find a lot more success. And, you know, a lot of the uh, the points that were brought up in Julia's piece were actually confirmed in a roundtable discussion that I was in at the AA convention, which... Uh, 
the results and the, the documentation of that are going to be published in Architectural Record, which we'll be sharing on Archonnect as well. I was participating in that with representatives from Gensler, HOK, ZGF, Handel, Perkins & Will, uh, Bespoke. And there were a lot of interesting points that were brought up that really confirmed the points in, in Julia's piece. So, you know, it's important information that people should take seriously. And we've got a lot more great documents to be sharing with employment community soon. Julia's advice in that article was perfect, spot on. And I think a lot of people do not get understand that yet. They don't understand that they really can't just, you know, drop a bunch of resumes from a helicopter and get a job. It's very, things are, people are getting used to mass customization these days. And her, I think it's like six or eight points of what to make sure you're doing. They were excellent, really valuable. So yeah, I think people definitely, if you're still looking, go, go read that article. And these aren't like, you know, just thoughts that she's, you know, pulling out of a hat. No. This is coming from information obtained through firms that are, that are currently having the hardest time ever finding the right fit at their office. And part of the reason for that is, uh, you know, hate to say it, but it's the fault of the job seeker. They just need to put in a little extra effort and more thought into making that connection happen and expressing themselves in the most effective way. You know, one of the things that is undervalued um, that I think most people coming in out of the school, out of school and into the profession don't utilize is their connections. I have none here in Minneapolis. I, I came here without any actual connection to anyone in any of the uh, programs here. So I think if you're looking to stay kind of situated where you are and you graduated from a program that's uh, in the same area as you, you really have to, you have, I mean, you're not doing yourself any favors if you're not seeking out your professors in your school and leveraging that network that you have there. So I think it's even less about what you put in your resume and more about how you leverage your own personality and your own ability to sell yourself because your resume is not going to do it. Like they said, what we found out today, you heard it from us. If you're looking for an architecture intern position, chances are they've already taken that word out. So you can't search it through Monster or Career Builder or through Indeed. So forget uh, looking for an intern job because those jobs don't exist. Well, I mean, look at the ways that some people, you know, at at the AAA convention, we literally saw job seekers walking around with t-shirts that they made promoting themselves as as, uh, looking for work. Donna, in her presentation, profiled the architecture five cents guy, you know, that turned a horrible situation during a horrible recession into, you know, he turned that into a unique opportunity that gave him a a really great career during a time when everybody was suffering. I also read about this other guy that got a job, I think at Google by optimizing his website so that when the boss at, at, the division of Google that he wanted to work at searched his own name. He came across this guy's resume. I mean, you know, there's a lot of ways to, uh, there's a lot of ways, you know, that, that you can come up with creative solutions to finding work. And none of these tips I feel are, to- are only exclusive to the architecture industry. I used to work at an arts college where I worked very closely with career development people and people directly involved in getting new graduates work and people who would coming alumni work. And these are just solid tips for anyone looking for a job. So I would fulfill, I would send this to any of my potential job seekers in a tough market or in a totally right market. Donna, I believe you have one more endorsement to share with us. It's another of Julia. So Julia's been working, I guess, while you guys have been on off at the convention. Julia wrote this really nice piece on, uh, it's a little interview with Paul Gold. Goldberger called Stop the Press's Paul Goldberger's take on critical relevance in the social media age. And I think, again, being, you know, being at the convention, talking to Ned Kramer about how Architect Magazine is dealing with this, and now hearing Paul Goldberger talk about the values of long-form journalism and the values of 
things like Twitter. There's some very smart people in the world thinking about these questions. And I think that Julia did a really nice sort of take on Paul Goldberger's attitude towards it. So there have been some comments on the article already, and I hope there will be more because it's a it's a good discussion of social media as a criticism of architecture and then the sort of traditional take on criticism. So lots of good stuff on the site. While we were gone, I was hardly looking at Archonnect at all, which is strange because usually I'm on it every hour or so, but there's a lot of good stuff on the site right now. So yeah, there is. There's so many other things that I that I could endorse, but um, you just have to go online and find them yourself. Yes, because we've been already talking on this podcast for a long time. We have. (laughs) On that note, why don't we just wrap this up? Sounds great. So as always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about the podcast, uh, you can reach us on Twitter with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. Uh, You can send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. We love all kinds of feedback, any kind of feedback. And if you like the podcast, consider rating us on iTunes and giving us a review. We love that. And it also increases the visibility of our podcast on iTunes, which in turn increases the visibility of architecture in general. So do yourself a favor and give us five out of five. Thanks for listening and uh, talk to you all next week. Until next week. Talk to you next week. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.